We're going to continue tonight with our study of Leviticus. Um, We've been looking at the book of Leviticus the last semester, which has been an exciting look. And uh, we've transitioned, and we're in the midst of this right now, we've transitioned from talking about atonement, which is how do we deal with our sin and our shame and our guilt. And we studied the first part of the semester that actually we don't. God does. God comes and deals with our shame and our guilt. Ultimately and finally, in what we're going to celebrate this week, in Easter, in Christ taking that on and becoming our justification, which is the theological term for Him taking our sin on Himself and Him giving us His perfect righteousness. Now, if that is true, which we've talked about, and I'm happy to talk with you more about it if you're curious or you can listen to the sermons. If that is true, how are we then to live? How are we then to live? And the book of Leviticus then says, okay, if God deals with our sin and our shame, we ought to live holy lives. We ought to live holy lives. And so we're right now, right now in the semester, in the midst of that examination of what is holiness? What does it look like to live a holy life? And we've looked at all kinds of things. We've looked at sexuality. We've looked at neighbor love. We've looked at all different facets. And tonight, we're going to look at another aspect of what holiness is. And so to get us started, I want, us to, I want to ask a question um, and see, you know, see what y'all experience. How many of y'all have, have looked at something in your life or in your past and just said, that's not right? That's not right. You look at something and go, that's just wrong. Yeah, many of you raise your hand. I remember when I was a kid, I had this particular feeling. This is a little cheesy, but also kind of tender. Um, I, was, I was young. I was like seven and, uh, you know, I was watching TV, and one of those ASPCA commercials came on, you know, where they show, like, they play this music, and they slow it down, like, three-quarter of, like, these dogs and cats that are neglected or abused or something like that, and they're, like, playing all this, like, the arms of an angel soundtrack. It's super sad, and, you know, they're trying to tug your heartstrings to get you to give money to support neglected, you know, and abused animals. And I remember being pretty young, you know, seven years old. I was a really tender kid growing up. Like, I would cry when my mom hit a butterfly with a car. Um, <laughs> so I'm serious. And I remember looking at, you know, like these pictures of these videos of these poor little abused animals and just like, that's not right. That's so wrong. Why would anybody do that to a little dog? Why would anybody do that to a cat? And I was just indignant about the injustice and the abuse of looking at, you know, of, of, at a little animal that had been abused. And uh, I'm sure that many of you have had something like that, where you look at a situation and you just go, that's not right, this is not how it should be, Some, something's wrong here, right? When you see a situation of abuse or oppression of the weak, we all have that gut reaction where we say, that's not right, this isn't how the world is supposed to work. This is wrong when the world does this. When one creature who's more powerful harms another creature that's weaker, just sometimes just for the heck of it, we say, that's wrong, that's not right, right? Well, tonight we're going to look at the book of Leviticus and see how it talks about that sort of situation on a social or a big canopy umbrella level, on a legal level, on an economic level, when we look at the world and say, that's not right. What are we supposed to do with that? So tonight... As we press in, we're going to look at holiness, but distinctively public holiness. 
Public holiness. Now, remember I talked about a couple weeks ago and I said, what do you think of when you think of the word holiness? And many of us today in our culture, we think of like a monk who's sort of removed and in a cloister, you know, praying. He's very holy, very pious. And that's a piece of holiness, is personal piety. But most of the time in Leviticus, when Leviticus talks about holiness, it's something very public, very tangible, very relational. When the Bible, and specifically when Leviticus talks about holiness, it means how you and I relate to one another, okay? So again, what we're talking about here is not necessarily individual moral purity, but all kinds, all levels of social holiness. So biblical holiness is engaging the whole world around us for the good of others. The Bible sees holiness as an all-encompassing, every facet of a person, which includes society, which includes the realm of politics and economics and law. So those are the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Another way of saying this is, you know, the the great command in Leviticus is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how all of Leviticus can be summed up. In fact, all of the law can be summed up under those two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what this is. It's taking that commandment to love and taking it beyond just the individual and expanding it to the social. Yeah? Does that make sense? The Bible is very concerned about that. Very concerned about this social love. And so tonight we're going to talk about that. Now, I acknowledge that this can feel really removed from college life, right? You know, you're in college, you're like, I got a chemi exam tomorrow, Jonathan. How in the world, what does this have to do with politics and economics? Like, don't preach to me about this. Talk about, like, how I'm going to deal with my parents. How am I going to deal with my roommate? That kind of thing. And why does this matter in a sec? How does social justice and everything that's wrapped up in that phrase, which is a lot, deal with where I am in college? It's a good question, right? It's a good question. I would argue that actually this question does matter. The idea of social justice really does matter, even while you're in college, even if it doesn't seem like a really pressing thing right now. Why? Why would I say that? First, it matters to God. (laughs) God cares about the justice in the world. He's very clear about that in all of Scripture, that God cares about economic, political justice. He cares about this social and societal justice. Second, this kind of thing is happening all around us on campus and in our city. Like, you, we may say, oh, this feels super remote. But, y'all, do you realize that we just had 500 immigrants come to Las Cruces this week? Now, regardless of how you feel about that on an immigration policy, you have to acknowledge, like, in our city, this stuff is happening. Questions about socially loving your neighbor, that's happening. So, and then second, third, third thing why I think this matters is you're not always going to be in college, right? <laughs> in fact, for a lot of us, We're training to go into sectors, into business, into medicine, into engineering, into education. And you better darn believe that these questions about social questions are going to affect your day-to-day job when you leave college. And you're going to be asking, man, does Christianity have anything to say about education policy? Well, not directly, but yes. Does Christianity have anything to say about how I run my business or my startup? Yeah, it does. It does have stuff to say about that. 
It absolutely matters. And finally, uh, fourth reason why I think this matters in college is, is these are all extensions of neighbor love. All of, this is, all of this in the chapter that we're looking at in Leviticus, chapter 19, is couched under a section that says love your neighbor. And if we're going to be interested in loving with our, na- our neighbor, we have to think more about how do I deal with my roommate, which is a great question, and I've talked about that, to how are we going to care for all of ourselves? So, Pay attention. Let's see what the text has to say. So if you have your bulletin or your phone or your Bible, look with me at this text and we're going to dig into it. This is from Leviticus chapter 19. This is God's word. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Skipping to verse 33. When a stranger sojourns in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephoth, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Let me pray real quick. Father, thank you that we can come once again and look at your word and see what it has to say um, about every facet of our lives, not just the imminent, close parts of living on campus, but even parts outside of it, and yet are very close to home. Um, We pray now that as we look at your word, at this text, that you would speak through it, and that you would equip us to love you and love our neighbor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, as we get started in here, the first thing I want to notice is that uh, God is making all kinds of commands, obviously. As you, you know, it's pretty obvious. He's making commands about how we should live in society here. And I want you to notice here at least three different kinds of justice. Three different kinds of justice that God is calling his people to, right? Uh, and, And actually, it's interesting, the first two are identical in Hebrew. Look at it again at the text. When it says, you sh- in verse 15, when it says, you shall do no injustice in court, and then verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in the original language, in the Hebrew, those are identical phrases. They mean the exact same, they're, they're, they're the exact same thing. Now, we translate them a little differently because one's context has to do with law and the other one's context has to do with economics. And so we, do a, we translate them a little different, but the idea is the same. So three different kinds of social justice that we're talking about here. First, a legal or a judicial justice, yeah? Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now, what does this mean? Well, it, you know, it's pretty clear. It's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to discern. It, it means here that, that in our legal, in our judicial world, in those realms of our world, the defining characteristic of them should be fairness, justice, equality, 
That, that, that we should not, you know, skew one way for the poor and just like have our default where our legal system is like, oh, we need to, you know, in the name of helping them up, maybe, you know, bend the laws a little bit. Or, as is more likely the case, where the powerful or the rich can kind of like, you know, put some money on the table or pull an old favor, you know, on a friend and, and get a ruling in their direction. God says, nah, no. When there's a legal matter, it needs to be decided fairly and with justice. It needs to be impartial. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a challenging statement, even for where we are today, that these things need to be judged with righteousness. And this word for righteousness, it means not just so that things are right, but actually it means for the flourishing of the full community. So that the whole community can say, yeah, that was a really good ruling. Or, yeah, that's a really good law. We all benefit from that. So laws should be impartial. They shouldn't benefit one party or another. So that's the first kind of justice that we see here is a legal or a a judicial justice. Second one is an economic justice. Look at verse 13 and verse 35. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Verse 35, you shall, do no judge, no, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances and just weight, a just effeth and a just hin. Now, what is this talking about here? Well, in verse 35, it says, in your judgment, that is, with how you decide what things are valued at, it should be impartial. It should be fair. Back then, trade was based on well, trade, you had scales, and you would basically balance things. You would, you know, you'd have a, a one weight and another weight, and that's how you discerned how much something was worth, right? You had a, well, these were weights. A just ephath was a, was, a, was a measure of weight. A hin was a measure of weight, like a pound or an ounce. It says, these things should be standard. You shouldn't skew your weights a little bit or skew your scale so that you get the better end of the deal, right? No, it says, for society to flourish... For the good of the society, these things should be fair and balanced for everyone. The principle here is economic equality. Now, when it says here in verse 13, you should not, you know, you should, you should pay your laborer every night. Does that mean that we should, you know, your boss is sinning when they don't pay you every day? Not necessarily. But what it does say is the principle here is that people should be paid a fair living wage in a timely basis. Like that, 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 it's amazing how detailed God is. God cares about the living wage of human beings. Overall, what does this look like today? It means that economic systems should be fair. That means that for those of you who are going into business, you should run your companies... You should work in a company or strive to work in a company that doesn't take advantage of the poor, that sells a good product for a fair price, that benefits those, you know, that's caring for society. That's not, you know, like a Bernie Madoff. That is not what we have in mind here, who's basically like, I'm going to get as much money as I can in a giant Ponzi scheme and rob $65 billion of people, of money from people. No, that is not what is in mind here. God is saying economic justice matters. Insider trading, cheating people, a whole world of financial fraud, they're sins. 
what this is saying. It's, it's failures of holiness and it's unloving towards neighbor. Okay, so those are, that's the second one. A third one is just basic general power abuse. This one pulls out a little bit more. Look at verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Look at verse 33 and 34. When a, sojourner, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger as, who, who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Now, what is it saying here? Basically, it's describing where one person maybe has like a power advantage over another person and abuses or oppresses that person. Like, think of a deaf person. Where are they weak? Well, in their hearing. Well, it's saying, well, where a deaf person is at their weakest, don't curse them. <laughs> or think of a blind person. Where are, they, where are they at their weakest? They can't see. Don't make them, don't hit them while they're down. Like, don't find the spot where you have power and abuse them in that place. Think about, verse, look at verse 35, when a stranger sojourns. Now, we don't recognize this. We all have power. When, when you're a native in a country or a place, you have a significant power edge on a person. I remember when I was, um, I was in Italy once, when I was about 16, I was in Florence. I was trying to buy a postcard, right? I don't speak Italian. It's a new country. I don't know anything about it. I was trying to buy a postcard. And the, stock, you know, the store owner knows I don't speak Italian, knows I'm a stupid American kid. He's 16, doesn't know any better. And he's trying to sell me a postcard for like what was the equivalent of 10 bucks. And I was like, okay. I guess that's what I gotta pay, you know. Like, and this native Italian guy walks up and it's like, no, uh, uh-uh, uh, not happening. He's like, and then you know they're Italians, so they're very, um, yeah, that's expressive, and so they're yelling. And he's like, no, what are you doing? You're too. And the, and the other guy's like, he was gonna pay it, and they're you know going going off. And, and finally, this guy talks him down. He's like, no, charge him a fair rate, you know, three bucks for a postcard or something like that. That's what happens when you're a native. You have that local institutional knowledge of how to be a person. You know where to get food, where to get gas, where to go for medical help. You speak the language. That's a huge advantage over those who are sojourning in the country. So that's a power that you have over another person. Imagine if you were to go to Kampala, Uganda. <laughs> you would be in big trouble. <laughs> Just you would be at a significant power disadvantage. Is this a safe neighborhood? I don't know. I could be in like the most dangerous neighborhood in the world and just be like, I don't know. (laughs) Or you could be in a really nice neighborhood and not know, right? Right? So that's what it's saying here is when you have a power advantage, don't use it to abuse another person, especially on a social level. Now, these rules, still, you know, they can feel somewhat vague, but what I want you to see is that what God does here is he lays a foundation. He lays a foundation upon which we are to think carefully and critically about how we order our society. He says, legal world should, the legal world should be just and fair. The economic world should be equitable in how it deals. And those who have power, don't abuse your power on a social level. He's laying out here what an ideal society of flourishing, of neighborhood, of neighbor love looks like. So when we pull back from these three kinds of of justice, legal justice, economic justice, and just general power abuse, what do we see? Well, a couple of lessons. First, God cares about justice. God cares about justice. The biblical God is himself perfectly just. 
He's perfectly fair. He's perfectly equitable. And he desires, he desires that his world reflect that. It's not like God is like, I'm perfectly just, but the world can look like whatever it wants. No, God says, I'm just, I am holy. I want the world to reflect that. And I want my people to live and to try and seek that for the world. Listen to what Psalm 82 here, when God is talking to oppressive people, he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God is a God who values and desires and ultimately creates justice in his world. Jesus was no different, right? Read Luke's gospel. You constantly see Jesus upending social norms to empower the disenfranchised. Jesus is radical in his in his, how he interacts with women who at the time were not powerful. Jesus is radical with how he interacts with children, with orphans, with those who are on the margins and less powerful. Jesus goes to them and empowers and enables and values them. Okay, second thing, by extension, if God loves justice, the, the, the converse is also true. God hates injustice. God hates Injustice. This is abundantly clear all over the Bible, but I don't think it's more clear anywhere than the Old Testament prophets. And if you know anything about it, you know that the prophets were the people that God sent to Israel when they were failing completely at justice. Like, it was just a mess. I mean, basically, if you name a possible social woe, it was happening. And God goes to them through the prophets and he rails them. He reads them the riot act on every level. He says, you're not caring about the orphans. You're not caring about the poor. You're not caring about women. You are perpetuating unjust systems. I hate it. And I hate it so much, I'm going to kick you out of my presence. I'm going to send you into exile. Not because you didn't do the sacrifices. Oh no, you're doing the sacrifices. You're not doing justice and I'm getting you out of here for it. God hates injustice. Now, what does that have to do with today? It means that God desires that our civil and social and economic systems reflect his character of justice and equity and love for our neighbors. What does that look like today? That when people are abused and enslaved today, God hates it. You know, there are more slaves in the world today than there ever been in history Slave trade is more rampant now than... I mean, think of, there are countries in Eastern Europe where there is not a woman between the ages of 16 and 24 because they've all been sold into sex slavery. They, they do not exist. God hates that. He hates that. How about racial injustice, like laws like Jim Crow? God hates those. Or when a business rips off a poor family or an investment firm defrauds billions of dollars. God hates that. When a family member hits or abuses a child, God hates, he hates that. When a a child bullies their classmate, God has no tolerance for that. He doesn't say, oh, it's a childish prank. No, he hates that injustice. So whenever we look at something and say, that's not right, God looks at it with more passion, with more zeal, with more wrath than we can ever drum up and say, I hate it more. Because it's an affront 
to the way he created the world. He cares for the poor, for the abused, for the afflicted, the powerless. And ultimately, he will judge in their favor. He judges the unjust. Another way to put it is that God cares about neighbor love. All of this is couched within neighborhood love and that social justice is a logical extension of neighborhood, of neighbor love. And God cares not just about our individual actions. Were you loving with your friend or with this friend or with your sibling? No, God cares not just about that. He cares about how systems and institutions and countries and nations are caring and loving for each other. So if God cares about justice, that, that brings us face to face with our, the reality in our world, right? And then we all very quickly realize, it doesn't take much to realize, like, wow, injustice abounds in our world, right? That as we study God's law and his commandments, what God's law does is it brings us right up to our failure. It brings us right up to the places where we fall short of what God calls us to. It sets the bar and it realizes we're way down here. We can't possibly measure up. You don't need me to show you that, that, you know, that social injustice, social, societal injustice, legal, economic, just power abuse, they abound today. That's where we get that feeling of this is just not right. In seminary, I took a class on sexuality. Part of the class was um, we watched a documentary called Half the Sky. Maybe some of you all have read it or read the book or seen the documentary. It's rough. Don't, don't watch it without friends or without you know, preparing yourself because it's about um, the global abuse and oppression of women around the world. Uh, just sex slavery and regular slavery and all sorts of stuff. Prostitution. It really is a gut punch. But you just feel this overwhelming sense of just, oh, this is so wrong. It's so wrong. It's so heavy. And uh, it's hard. You know, think about that. You think about, like, bullying. Why is there so much attention paid to bullying right now? Because it's a big problem. What is bullying? It's when one person who has power, either intellectual power or physical power, beats up on another kid. Maybe some of y'all have been in there. One way or the other. God cares about that. Another, you know, economic injustice. God cares about when people lose their entire investment, all their life savings, because some stockbroker is trying to add an extra billion dollars to his account. God cares about that. On the, you know, of course, on the border here, there's all the corruption of the immigration. New Mexico is one of the most corrupt states in the country with bribery and money laundering and campaign fraud. I mean, like injustice on a social level is all, all around us, so much so that we kind of have shot, like we just kind of get desensitized to reading. you just like, ah, another shooting, ah, another politician that goes downhill, ah. You just kind of like zone it out, right? Because it's just so prevalent. Now the question is, where does that come from? Where does that level of social injustice come from? And interestingly enough, I was doing some research on this, there really isn't, among non-Christians, there's really no consensus there's, there's a bunch of different opinions on where, inju- but nobody really agrees. And, and, you know, some people say it's economic. Like a Marxist will say, well, it's when the haves impl- you know, abuse the have-nots. Or sexual theorists will say, well, it's when the a sexual majority is abusing the sexual minority. Or feminists will say, oh, it's when men, it's when the, all the men are the problem, when they're abusive and manipulative and oppressive to women. There's all these different theories on where this sort of abuse and oppression and injustice come from. 
And I think, I think they all are onto something. They all have a piece of the pie, but that's just the problem is they just have a piece of the pie. And they don't get to the heart of the problem. Do you remember what we talked about last week? How we all know that we need to do neighbor love, and yet we can't seem to do it. And how Christianity cuts through it all and goes straight to the heart and says, no, it's not, it's not feminism, it's not capitalism, it's not Marxism, it's not liberal democracy. The Christianity cuts to it and says it's the human heart. Oppression and abuse and violence start in the human heart. The best example I can think of is this is from Genesis 6. You remember in Genesis 3, that's when sin enters the world. When Adam and Eve choose to violate God's command, they eat of the forbidden fruit, they reject his law, and it just starts this downward spiral of the world where it doesn't just break things between them and God and them and each other, but it starts to break down the society around them. And we get to Genesis 6, where personal sin has spread out into being whole social sin. And it it gets really, really bad. So that in Genesis 6, it says that the whole world is, quote, filled with violence. The whole world is filled with violence. And it says that the thought of every person is towards violence, is against God. That's why, that's where it all comes from. That's where this oppression comes from is from a sinful hearts, which, do you know what that means? Is that indicts all of us. It doesn't just mean that you, get, you and I get to play the victim card, and that's what we all like to do. We all like to find that thing. Well, I, am, I, I struggled with learning, so I deserve special preferential treatment. Or, well, I, I'm, I'm a woman, so I prefer... You know, no, what this does is when it says that all of us, when it, when it roots it in sin, it lumps us all into the problem together and says we are all oppressors who are oppressing each other. Sin lumps us all in and says, all of us are unjust. And you know what? God judges the unjust. So that means that Christianity, God can look at, come down and say, you are all unjust, you are all oppressors, and I will judge you all. That's the problem. That's what happens. So what do we do with this? <laughs> what do we do with this? Well, the Scripture gives us a couple of things. First, we repent. We start with repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is, it's first of all naming, oh my gosh, I am part of the problem. I am the problem. Repentance is turning, saying I'm part of the problem and turning from sin and to holiness. So it starts with saying I'm part of the problem. But then it starts with another, it, it, it goes on, it means we start listening. Rather than yelling at each other, no, you're the problem, no, you're the problem, no, you're the problem, it's just we start to listen As a man, I need to listen to women. As a heterosexual, I need to listen to our gay and lesbian friends. As a white man, I need to listen to our racial minorities. We need to listen to each other. Second of all, we need need to start apologizing. I'm sorry I've hurt you. I've oppressed you. I don't even know it, and yet I know I've been part of the problem in ways. Will you forgive me? Will you help me learn how I can be a part of a system that doesn't use you, but actually loves you. Third, we need to seek change. We need to, in various ways that we have power, try to redirect and change positions and systems from abuse to love. And each of us has some power. If you're a business owner, you've got a lot of power in the economic realm. If you're a politician, you have some power. If you're a man, you have some power. If you're a woman, you have some power. 
Each of us has some power that we can start to use it not in oppression, but towards justice and love. But is that enough? Is that enough? Well, no. We need something that's actually going to solve the problem. And here's where the good news comes in. Here's where God comes into the midst of this floundering mess and starts to make it right. Well, how do we see that? Well, look with me. We get a tiny glimpse of it in verse 36. (coughs) Look at verse 36. The second half, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, that's significant because remember, what was Israel's status in the land of Egypt? They were slaves. They were slaves. They were victims. They were victims of economic oppression. They were forced to do manual labor with no pay. They were slaves of racial oppression. They were slaves of power where the Pharaoh would come in and kill all their babies. They were, they, they, and in every level, they were mistreated. They were the sojourner. They didn't belong in Egypt. They were the ones who were sojourning in a foreign land and were manipulated and abused. And God says, in the midst of your floundering desperation, I save you. I bring you out of the oppression. That's what we call it when we say God redeems his people. In the midst of oppression and abuse, God comes in and says, I redeem and I save you. And, and that's, this is what's so amazing is, yes, that happened to Israel 3,500 3, years ago, but that points to a deeper and more full spiritual reality of God's final redemption, right? Listen, listen to, X, I mean, to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this verse, it doesn't seem like it initially, but this verse is loaded with Exodus and redemption themes. Loaded with Exodus language. Then, rather than just the Israelites, the us is everyone who trusts in God. The domain of darkness is no longer just physical Egypt, but it's the whole sinful world of oppression and abuse and injustice. The promised land is no longer just Palestine, but it's the eternal kingdom of God where there's no more oppression, where Christ is king, where he rules with justice and impartiality and equality. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning is that Christ comes and says, I redeem you from your sins. I start and I inaugurate a kingdom that's coming like a bowling ball down an alley. You can't stop it. God's kingdom is coming full of justice and equity. That's what happens when Christ rose from the dead. So where's the gospel? The gospel is that God, through the work of Jesus, broke the oppressive power of sin. So that whether we are the oppressed or the oppressor, we know that God has won the battle against abuse and oppression. God has won the battle through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now that's not done yet because oppression still exists, but we know the end of the story. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, tells us it's like the, we get to peek behind the curtain at the last chapter of what God is doing. And we get to see an era where God destroys all oppression. Where does it say? In beautiful poetic language. No more tears. Where every tear is wiped away. Why? Because there's no more oppression. There's no more sin. There's no more abuse. That is coming. Praise God because Christ is risen. If that is true... If that is true, then oppression 
it has an expiration date. Economic oppression, legal oppression, racial oppression, all of it, sexual oppression, it has an expiration date. I couldn't say it better than that 10,000 times 10,000. That's a song meditating on what God is doing, where he's driving history. Orphan no longer fatherless, widow no longer destined. Here are the weak who are brought in and empowered and loved. We're in the middle of the story, but we know the final battle that sin is won. And right now, you and I are in like mop-up operations. We're in the mop-up operations of Christ's victory. And we are now called to pursue holiness with what God is already doing. Now, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Well, first of all, God cares about injustice, and God cares about the injustice in your life. Not just the social injustice, but the ways that you have been hurt. God cares about that, and he will vindicate that. And look, here's the deal. All of us have been oppressed and wounded and hurt in some way. God cares about that, and he's, not, he's going to wipe away every one of those tears. He's not going to just leave you as the abused. God is in the process of healing that. Run to the Psalms and you'll see a God who cares and will bring justice. Second, you and I are called to seek social justice. This is a contentious statement. Some of you may disagree with me. There's a lot of other pastors who will disagree with me. But I just, Scripture tells us that God cares about it and that we are called to pursue it. I won't, you know, what does that look like? Man, that's hard. <laughs> Especially when you get to a policy level. That's really hard. Um, but I think biblical social justice, it cuts against all of our political grains. For example, biblical justice means protecting the life of the unborn. That offends the left. Biblical justice means protecting and empowering sojourners, which would mean immigrants. That offends the right. Biblical justice cuts right through our policies and says God doesn't care and God cares more than we ever can. Does that make sense? And we need to care too. Some suggestions I have for this. One, how, how has God empowered you? Where do you have power? Use it for justice. That means your vote. All of us can vote in our country. We need to vote. I'm not telling you how to vote, what party to vote for, but I am saying vote for politicians and platforms and policies that will seek the justice of our society. Second, use your money. Money is powerful stuff. How can you give, how can you spend that brings equity and justice? Third, use your time. How can you volunteer? How can you love those who are weak and disenfranchised for justice? And fourth, this is more general, with your power. Again, we all have some sort of power. How can you leverage your power not to abuse others, but in light of what God has done to liberate you from oppression, how can you love your neighbor? So what do we see here? First, we see God cares about social justice. He really cares about it. Out of his character, he desires that his people reflect that same holiness and justice in our lives. Second, injustice stems from sin. It's nothing else than sin. It's only the oppressive power of sin. And third, God will bring final justice. Amen. God will bring final justice. And we're in the waiting period in which we get to join him and participate that. I'd love to talk with you more about this if you have more questions. But until then, let's pray, let's work, let's pursue the justice that God is doing. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thanks for this time that we can look at your word, look at something that in some ways feels more removed from where we are, but is actually still so close. Um, Father, we pray that you would bring justice to our world. We pray for the disenfranchised and the powerless, uh, that you would vindicate them, and that you would be merciful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.